Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of 1 Corinthians. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to the struggling church in Corinth. They were allowing the culture to influence them more than they were impacting the world. As a result, the church was crumbling. Paul's strong words of rebuke and encouragement teach us many things about how we as believers should live in a dark and depraved world. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody. And I told you to be seated. That was a lie. You can stand up. I don't know why I said that. I just kind of came out. I know what it was. You needed exercise. That's it. I see what's going on with you. You're getting too, too uh, slack out there. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning, uh, continuing from where we started a couple weeks ago when we did our introduction. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it is good to see you. We had a marvelous weekend last weekend on Easter Sunday, and uh, boy, what a great weekend we had. But uh, we're just going to continue plowing along through the Word of God, and here we are in 1 Corinthians beginning at verse 10, chapter 1. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this to each of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that they were baptized in my name. Now, I baptize also the household of Stephanus, but that I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. You may be seated. The story is told of two men who were riding a bicycle built for two, and they came to a very steep hill, and they made their way, they struggled up to the top. And when it got to the top, the guy in the front turned to the guy in the back and says, wow, man, that was really, really tough. That was a hard climb. To which the guy in the back said, yeah, it's a good thing I kept the brake on the whole time. Otherwise, we'd have gone backwards. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, it's, it's a picture of what the church can be like when we're not in sync with one another. It's kind of a picture while some are going forward, some are putting on the brakes. And then it becomes a real drag as far as making our way forward. But the truth is this, is that churches can become a very ugly scene when Christians are not working together in unity, when they're not working together in harmony, when everyone's running off in their own self-centered direction, doing their own thing, serving their own agendas at the expense of others around them. On the other hand, there is really nothing more beautiful and more powerful than when the body of Christ is operating as one in the unity of the love of Christ, sharing the mind of Christ toward the purpose of Christ. That's a very beautiful thing to see. 
And we know that that can only be accomplished by the working of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that we can manufacture. It's not something we can make do. That kind of unity only comes from, really, I think, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in our lives that gives us that kind of unity as we seek to work together. Now, this is what we've been dealing with as we're going through here in 1 Corinthians. And a couple of weeks ago, as we said, I kind of gave the introduction, introduction of this and looking at this first letter. And if you were not here, I want to strongly encourage you to go back and listen to that because it really sets the foundation for where this whole book is uh, in the overview of it all. But as we saw in that study that the culture and environment of the city of Corinth could be likened much to our current environment. It was an environment and a culture that was paganistic. It was pluralistic. It had many different religious beliefs and doctrines and philosophies. And it was really a void of a lot of particular moral conviction. Now, unlike our American culture, it did not have a history of being grounded in the truth at some point. It's kind of interesting that when you go back to Washington, D.C., uh, and you begin to look at all the monuments, you're hard-pressed to go anywhere where you don't see Scripture. I mean, Scripture is everywhere. It's hard to believe that they want to block Christ out of, the, out, of the, out of the government, but it's like everywhere when you go to Washington, D.C. You go in the Capitol building, Scripture, 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 Scripture. So we have that foundation here, but we've departed from that. But in Corinth, they never had that kind of founding. Despite the carnality and the worldliness of the culture and the environment of Corinth, when Paul came and he brought the gospel to that city, that worldly city and the power of the Holy Spirit, there were sinners who repented. There were sinners who gave their life to Christ and they were set free from bondage of sin and death and they were given that promise of eternal salvation. It's a marvelous thing when you see God's hand working in such a wicked place. You know, I think of the, the churches even today in places that are horribly given over to great witness, uh, wickedness, and yet God is still working in his church, and people are still growing, and it's a wonderful scene. Now, we know that when Paul first went to Corinth, that he had spent about a year and a half there, where he established and laid a foundation for the church, but about an, within a couple of years later, on his third missionary journey, while Paul is ministering there in Ephesus, he received a report telling him of the condition now of the church in Corinth. But the bottom line of the report was this, the church is in trouble. It seems that there was a lot of serious issues that were rooted in the fact that the people had become very carnal in their reasoning. And what I mean by carnal is this, they're no longer thinking spiritually, they're now, now uh, living in a way which is about me, it's about myself, and because of that there was disunity. And there was divisions, there were cliques, there were infighting in the church. There's pride and snobbery. There's personal, personality cults. There were some believers who were suing un, un, other believers in civil courts. There was sexual sin, even incest taking place uncontested by the church. Paul addressed issues regarding marriage and singleness, and he talked about people abusing their freedoms at the expense of others, causing them to stumble. I mean, they were abusing the Lord's table, they were even abusing spiritual gifts. And even the gifts of the Holy Spirit had become a source of pride with the people. And the people were acting according to their carnal nature. So rather than being ruled by the Holy Spirit, they're now being ruled by their own carnal flesh. And it would seem that the culture of Corinth was having a greater influence on the church than the church was having on the city. 
Now, overall, at best, some people were just stagnant in their spiritual growth. They were not going anywhere. Others were backslidden. They were moving backward. They were immature. They're lacking in love. But at the root of the problem is the fact it seems that they had lost really the key components of what it means to live for Christ. You know, the identity that we have in Christ, our calling in Christ, our purpose in Christ, and most importantly, our utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Now, anytime Jesus himself loses his central place in the church, it can only result in carnality of mind. And that will only lead to disunity among the believers, everyone serving their own agenda, rather than the agenda of the Lord. So, of course, Paul, when he read this letter, he must have been really grieved, I think disappointed. It's like, wow, how did we ever get here? In truth and love, though, we see that Paul picked up his pen and he began to write to this church and he gives them encouragements. He gives them reproof. He gives them rebuke. At times, he corrects them. But his whole aim is to bring them back to a place where they are healthy and strong in their faith. Now, God knew that the issues of what happened in Corinth would be issues that churches would be wrestling with for the rest of time. And so because of that, he made sure that we had a copy of the letter because there's things that we need to grab a hold of lest we find ourselves going in that same, that same direction. So hopefully throughout our time studying this letter here at Corinthians, we may be able to identify some of our own struggles, maybe even some of the hurts of the conflicts that we have suffered in the past, maybe in church and things that we have gone through. Maybe we can kind of get a hold of our own disillusionments or our disappointments that we've had in the church. Now, one of the things that I'm aware of, that is this, is that some of you are here, you're new believers, but other of you, you've been around for a while. You've gone from different church to different church to different church. Some of you have gone through tremendous hurts in churches, disappointments in churches. Some of you have come here, it's like your last ditch effort. Man, it's like, man, I'm going to try it one more time. And if it doesn't work this time, then I'm just giving up on the church. Because that's kind of the way we, we are. And there may be even some of us, as we go through our study, we may look at our past through a different lens. We may look back and say, maybe the problem wasn't so much the church as it was with me. Maybe I was the problem. Maybe I was the one who had some issues. Maybe I'm the one. And maybe in that case, God's going to lead you to some really great repentance and some restoration with some relationships that need to be repaired. But Paul, we saw, began his letter with encouragement. He thanked God for them, for the grace that was given to them when they first came to Jesus. He called them the churches of God's church in Corinth. They were the ecclesia. These are ones who've been called out for the Lord. They are sanctified, he says. They're cleansed by God with the blood of Jesus. They've been set apart for holy service. They're called to be saints, to be set apart for God. And the thing you realize is that when Paul gives this beginning, this introduction, that he does not question whether or not they're truly believers. He knows they're believers. They're just believers that have lost their way. They're believers that have kind of withdrawn from their, their dependency upon the Lord and they're doing their own thing. So the first issue that he begins to address here is this issue of unity or lack of unity because there were divisions and there's cliques within the church. And they were being revealed in a variety of ways, as you're going to see throughout our study in 1 Corinthians. So he says here in verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, 
and that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now again, the report when, when it was given to Paul about how divided their church was, I'm sure he was grieved because he realizes the believers here, they're not walking in unity anymore. They're no longer on the same page. They're no longer going in the same direction. And as a result, the body is pulled apart. And there's a lot of divisions and cliques. So Paul shifts his attention from the encouragement that he began with now to the exhortation. He says, I exhort you. And that word exhortation or exhort means to strongly urge, as the parakaleo, to beseech you, to call out. In other words, says, I'm calling you out. I'm calling you out on this and I'm invoking the authority of the name of the Lord Jesus who has authority over you. Now this is a critical point because when they were all first saved, you know, they were saved in the name of Jesus Christ. On that day, when they gave their life to Jesus, like all of us, our identity changed. Do you guys recognize that? It's like we no longer have the same identity. Just as a bride surrenders her maiden name to the groom, so it is that when we come to Jesus as our Savior and we surrender our lives to him, we surrender our maiden name from Adam's family. Now we take on the new identity of the family of Jesus. We're now the brethren in the Lord. We've been purchased by God with a price. We belong to him. We're his property. And we are under his authority. So as a church of Christ, we bear his name. And everything that we do as a church kind of reflects on his name. Everything that we, how we function together. So his exhortation is really one is positive, and that is that you all agree. That you work in harmony with one another, that you're in unity. A negative one is that you, there's no longer divisions and disunity among you, these schisms that have taken place. And that you come together in unity so that you may be made perfect, that you might be mature and ready for Everything that God, given one mind. Now, the first thing you think about, really, we're all going to be together as one, really? We're all going to agree? Really? I mean, that's a tall order. We're people. And we don't do agree easy sometimes. I mean, if you look around the room here, you realize that we're all very unique people. We have a lot of different backgrounds. A lot of us here today, we wouldn't even associate with each other other than the bond that we have in Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what brings us together. I can, there's, there's people from every kind of background in this room, I can tell you right now. There's wealthy people, there's poor people, there's all kinds of di different conditions that you come from, and we are all people, we have our own personalities, we all have our likes or dislikes. We don't, by nature, do unity well. We just really don't. Pastor's on the phone, he says, bad news, Bishop, our church is planning team has kind of gotten into a big argument about whether we're going to call our congregation First United Church or United First Church. It's like, what are we going to be? Are we going to be united or anything like that? <laughs> Another one comes back and he says, well, uh, we're going to be voting on whether we're going to repave the parking lot. And we just want to know. He says, got the votes back. There were 40 yeses. There were seven noes. And one said one over my dead body. So you have, <laughs> you have people who have different opinions about what should be done, how it should operate. You know, people, by our own unsanctified carnal nature, we have eye problems. The problems we have is that we're self-centered, that we can be carnal-minded and fleshly driven. And it becomes about I and me. And when it's I and me, it sets the condition for disunity. 
of chaos and division. Because once I get involved, it can get ugly fast. Because I want things my way. I want things to be the way I like them. I want things to be about me. I want to be in charge. When I go to church, I want to know what he's going to do for me and what they're going to get from me. Am I going to like the music? Does the music make me play? When I get in charge. And once you get a lot of different eyes starting to work together, there can only result in divisions and disunity and clicks and ticks. You know, sometimes over small issues, sometimes over greater issues. But there are too many things that can cause divisions and schisms in the church, but they usually all stem from the I problems that we have, the me stuff. Well, this is Corinth. It is an I church. It's a me church. It's kind of, you can kind of see, it's kind of taken this effect that we're here to see what's good for me and what's good for I. And once you begin to be all about I, you begin to lose your J-O-Y. Because joy is spelled Jesus, others, and you. Once you get things out of order, I mean, it gets really messy. Joy will never be spelled Y-O-J. It's only Jesus, others, and you. And that's the order for real joy. Now, I want you to understand how important unity is within the church. Listen to the prayer of Jesus in John 17 as he prays for his own disciples. In John 17, 11, says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. He then goes on to pray for all believers in verse 20. He says, I do not, ask, do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. He's saying, listen, our unity is going to be one of the things that's going to really kind of give the evidence of you, Lord, your working is going to be evident by how we function with one another. When you look at Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians uh, ch chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the, uh, of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Spiritual unity, you find out, was one of the key characteristics in the book of Acts. After they had been filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in Acts 4.32, and the congregation of those who believed were with one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. You know, when God's people are in sync, when we're walking in unity of the Holy Spirit, seeking the mind of Christ for the purpose of Christ and the love of Christ, wonderful things happen. You know, I think of Psalm 133, 1, Behold how good, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Jesus also said this, he said in Luke 11, 
Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Now, countless churches we know have fallen apart. They've gone down in flames through divisions when, when selfishness takes root and there's vain pride and it all happens in the name of Jesus and then the church is kind of dragged through the mud and the name of Jesus is dragged through the mud. Now this particular division that he's first addressing here isn't about parking lots and not about the color of the carpet. No, what he's talking about is personalities. The people are bickering over their cliques, they're having cliques and schisms over who their preferred teacher is. This is interesting. Some are saying, well, I, I'm of Paul. And others are saying, well, I, I'm of Apollos. And some are saying, well, I, I'm of Cephas. And some are saying, well, I'm of Jesus. I'm of Christ. My preacher is better than your preacher. And this is happening within the church. And it's created schisms. So there are basically four distinct groups here. Groupings of believers based upon who they follow as their teacher. These are the groupies. You know, some were the groupies of Paul. You know, Paul did have some good credentials. I mean, he has a great testimony. He was personally appointed by Jesus to be an apostle after the resurrection of Jesus. None of the other apostles had that distinction. You know, he had a great testimony. He had, a, he had been a persecutor of the church and he went on to be the persecuted because of Jesus. That's impressive. I mean, he had an impressive resume. He was highly educated. He studied under a, a great and well-known teacher, Gamaliel. I mean, he knew his stuff. He once held a high position in the Jewish Sanhedrin. But even with that, there were some who were not impressed with Paul. In fact, 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Listen, Paul, we know this is a great writer. Isn't that why we have so much of his writing here in the New Testament? He was strong as a writer. He was a great writer. You put him on paper, but when you saw him up close... It seemed like he must have been a disappointment to some, really unimpressive to others. Now, tradition tells us that Paul was a man of moderate stature, that he had crisp hair, he had crooked legs, that he had blue eyes, he had large knit brows, he had a long nose. In other words, I don't think he was too cool looking. I just kind of get the picture of you looking at him and go, oh, who's that guy? You know, I don't think if he was around today, I'm thinking he would have any tats, I don't think he'd have any braids. I think he would just be kind of the, you know, the, the guy. The guy who's coming along, not too impressive to look at. But he was a great writer. But as far as his speaking, man, he was contemptible. His oratory skills were lacking. I mean, he was known to put people to sleep. There was a guy who fell asleep during his teaching, actually fell out the window and got killed. Now, that's not too impressive as a teacher when that happens. Now, fortunately, he had the gift to go down there and raise the guy back to life, but I'm not sure that happens to everybody. <laughs> I had a professor in college who was really educated. I mean, he was very, very intelligent. He had multiple degrees and doctorates. And his teaching, though, was really dry. I mean, he was one... Every class was a stretch, man. It was like, how am I going to make it again? He was just so dry. I had to try to work to stay awake in his class. One of the interesting things was is that one of our textbooks was, happened to be a book that he had written. As I'm reading the book, I think, who in the world wrote this? 
I mean, because the book was so good. I thought, wow, he's got personality. And I'd kind of bring the book into class, and I'd look, read the book, and I'd look up and say, can't be the same. It's got to be somebody different. Well, that's, that's Paul. You know, he's a great writer, not so impressive to look at, not a great speaker, but he does write well. And then there was others who were groupies of, Paul, of Apollos. Now, we don't know a whole lot about him. We do know that he was not personally designated as an apostle, that he had never really been with Christ. He was, however, a great student of the word in Alexandria. He was a great learner. He actually uh, helped the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila there in Corinth. Now, we don't, again, have any of his writings. We don't have any books from Apollos. But, man, that guy, from what we can understand, he had the gift, man. He could speak. He was an orator. I mean, he had a way with words, I think, that was flawless. He, has, he was, I think, cool. I think if you think about it, I mean, the, the Greeks were extremely impressed with oratory skills. And sometimes the way something was said was more important than what they said. Wow, did you hear how he said that? That's really pretty neat. Well, Apollos, it seems, he would have been like the envy of maybe a lot of pastors. He was the sermonator. You know, he was like the Chuck Swindoll of his day or the Charles Stanley. He might have had the charisma of a John Corson. But he had this connecting way with the way he spoke and I don't know, again, if he was around today, whether he would have the tats and he would be as cool, but I think people really liked him for a lot of different reasons. Maybe he just looked, he had a better look about him. And then you come to Cephas, who we know is Peter. And Peter, all he is, is he's simply a fisherman with, by vocation. He's a country bumpkin from up there in Galilee. He has no formal education that we know of, but he was one of the 12. You see, he was personally selected by Jesus to be one of his disciples. And so he has this fame by association. I mean, he walked with Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He personally knew Jesus. He witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, he did have a slow start. We know this. But eventually, he goes on to do some great things in the kingdom. And he's simple in speech. I don't think his vocabulary is... Is, I mean, I think it is far more limited, perhaps not as eloquent as Apollos or as intelligent as Paul, but he could preach with a lot of power. So after we, we read out his first sermon after Pentecost that when he was filled with the Holy Spirit that he preached a message and 3,000 people repented that day. That's impressive. So he had a good history and you think, well, man, he was with Jesus. I mean, I want to be with him. He's really cool. And he had performed some awesome signs and wonders. Obviously, the Holy Spirit was on him. But, you know, look at him. I think he was very simple. I mean, he was a man's man. He was rugged to the core. He didn't dress for success. Probably had a little more emotion than perhaps Paul. And lastly, we come to the groupies of, say, they are after Christ. Now, I personally believe that this group of groupies may have been the worst of all. And why? You say, aren't we supposed to be followers of Christ? Of course we are. But I don't think that's the attitude here. I think the attitude is something like this, my boasting. Well, I, I'm of Christ. I'm of Christ. Not any man. Only Christ teaches me. And have you ever met with those super spiritual people who are always out to show how spiritual they are by the things that you say? And you say, well, man, I love chocolate cake. Well, I love the Lord. This group, to me, I think are the exclusionists. I think these are the ones who say, you know, really no one's good enough for them. They don't need to be under anyone's teaching of any one man. 
nor do they see the need of the rest of the body of Christ. They're kind of the loners. These are the special ones who don't really need anyone. They don't need the church, and they certainly don't need to submit to anyone's authority. No, their boast is that they're followers of Jesus and him alone, bag the rest of the body. It's kind of interesting because when you go through the book of Jude, like we just went through recently, you realize that one of the characteristics of these false teachers is that they were under no one's authority. They were their own authority. They submitted to no one other than themselves. They didn't mind claiming their spiritual authority when it came to ruling over others and their special relationship with the Lord, but they refused to be under anyone else's authority. And so here's the church here in Corinth. It's broken up. It's divided by groups, cliques and splits, some of Paul, some of Apollos, some of Cephas, some of Christ. Now, I want to say this because I think it's concerning to me that in our present day, we do a lot of the same thing. We do a lot of the same thing. We have our, our own way of becoming groupies of particular celebrity pastors that we kind of build up in our own mind and say, well, yeah, but I'm so-and-so, and I'm of so-and-so, and I'm of so-and-so. And we are a very image culture. We kind of make decisions. How do they look? And how do they see? Not necessarily what they say. Sometimes it's, are they cool enough for me? Are they really going to meet me? And when you begin to think like that, you're thinking carnally. You're no longer thinking of spiritual people. Now you're not simply listening to what the Lord might say to you, but how do I feel? How does it identify with me? Paul addresses these carnal groupies and their fetishes, and he says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? That's a good question. Was Christ divided into groups? Is that who we have in the Lord? Is it one group over here, one group over there? Is that how Jesus has given himself? And was Paul crucified for your sins? Was he the one who did it? Or was Apollos? And of course, the rhetorical question has a rhetorical answer. Of course not. You know, he, he says, you know, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Well, of course not. No, you're all baptized into one name, and that name is Jesus. Under the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. And it says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. So that I did not baptize also, the, I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. And beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized any other. Now Paul says, I thank God that I baptized, I baptized just a few of you, Crispus and Gaius and some of the household of Stephanus. But even that, none of them were baptized in my name. None of them did it for me. And the point he's making is this, is that it isn't who baptizes someone, but what baptism represents. It represents the matter of a person as now identifying themselves with Jesus and baptism. That's one of the exciting things we did last week. I love the baptism. Because it gives you this picture of an outward symbolic act that demonstrates an inward reality. Because when you're baptized, it's a picture of you going under in the death of Jesus, being raised in the life of Jesus. Your old man is being put to death, and you're being raised a new man in Jesus Christ, a new creature in Christ. And that's a beautiful symbolic act. Paul says this, I'm not against baptism. No, but it's not who baptizes you. It's what it means to be baptized. So in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. 
Again, people, Paul is not disparaging baptism here, water baptism. He's just saying, hey, this is my place. You know, he wasn't sent by Christ to do baptisms alone. No, he was sent by Christ to preach Christ and him crucified so that the message of Christ and of this gospel might be heard and given out and sent to all who would need to hear. Paul understood this. He understood that all he was and all he could ever be is a vessel, a tool in the hands of God to serve the purposes of God. You see, Peter, Paul, and Apollos, they're all unique. They had different personalities for sure. They had different giftings, but they were all vessels. They were tools used by God to serve his purposes, to serve his, his, his matter. One was a hammer, and one might have been a saw. One might have been a measuring tape, but they all had this common purpose this common denominator, they served the will of Christ with the gifts that God had given them to build up the body of Christ. They're working in harmony. You know, Paul says this, he says, you know, all we are is simply the gifts that God uses. We're on the same page. We have different gifts. You see, no one sees a beautiful house and goes, wow, man, let me see the hammer that built this. No one, let me see the saw that you used or what measuring tape it was. No, it's like, who designed this thing? That's the picture of what Jesus intends the church to be. It's like, wow, who designed this? This is amazing. And when you have all the people that are kind of serving the Lord and they're doing what God's called them to do in the same purpose and the same mind, it's a very beautiful picture. You see, Peter, Paul, and Apollos, they weren't against each other. They weren't competing with each other. They weren't out there to say, well, man, who's going to follow me and who's going to follow you and who's going to follow you? They're simply doing what God had called them to do. Now, people, the problem is, is that today, we too, we can be groupies. You know, we can say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm of Jacob or Jacob Arminianus, and I'm of John Calvin, and I'm John MacArthur, I'm Chuck Swindoll, and I'm of Chuck Smith, and I'm of John Corson, I'm of Doug Snow. I don't know why you want to ever do that, but there may be some of that. We can have pride over a denomination. Listen, I am of the Assemblies of God. I am of the Foursquare. I am of the Baptist. I am of the Methodist, and I am of the Presbyterian, and I, I'm of Calvary Chapel. Man, do you know how much that misses the heart of God for us? That's convicting. How grieving it must be to the one who makes us one when we who are one act like we're all doing our own thing because there is one body, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord. The question is never what group do you belong to, but do you belong to Jesus? That's the question. Are you born again? Have you been made new in the life of Christ? Not what group you're from, from Calvary Chapel or Methodist or Baptist or whatever it is. Paul says, now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete, that's mature, in the same mind and in the same judgment. I was thinking about unity and how I would define unity and what it means. 
Unity in Christ means this. It means being one in Christ. One in the love of Christ. One sharing the mind of Christ with the heart of Christ, serving as one the purpose of Christ, toward the mission of Christ, toward the goal of Christ. That to me. Philippians 2, 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. But the key idea that you see in all of this is that unity is found in Jesus himself. It's being Christ-centered, serving the agenda of Christ with your life. There can never be unity without Jesus at the center. That's a, that's a fundamental truth. He has to be the center of your life if you ever hope to achieve unity in the body of Christ. But I also want to address what unity of Christ does not mean. It does not mean ecumenism. It's Unity, is, is, and Paul is stressing here, might be what some call for ec ecumenism, but where you kind of, the idea is you have this big love feast going on between you and all this variety of religions and faiths and even perversions of faiths that are not centered on Christ. There cannot be unity outside of Christ and the fundamental truths of Christ. Now, this unity is found centered on the person and the working of Jesus who makes us one and gives us a common faith. And it is a supernatural working of the Holy Spirit. We should never seek spiritual unity with those who don't share the spiritual common truths that we share. Jesus made it very clear that faith in him was going to cause conflict. It was going to cause chasms and schisms between families. He said, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, for I came to set a man against his father, a daughter, a daughter against her mother-in-law, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and the man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Jesus says, look at the very nature of truth is going to bring division. It's going to separate you, but this is not the way it should be among the people, among the family of Jesus. Next, unity in Christ does not mean uniformity. Paul is going to address that as we get further into the letter. Though we are called to be one in Christ, we are not all the same. Nor does God intend us to be the same. We are not called to be cookie-cutter Christians. We are not called to be clones of one another or any person. No, the only one we want to seek to be like is Jesus. But he didn't call us to be little Chuck Smiths. He didn't call us to be little Kevins. He didn't call us to be any of those things. And aren't you glad? Because in the body of Christ, there's diversity. We all have these different gifts. Listen, God intentionally made us different. Can you grab a hold of that? He made us different on purpose. There's different giftings that we have. We have different styles and personalities we have things that we like to do, other things we don't like to do. But he's never designed us to be clones of one another. It's an awesome thing when you think about it. I mean, if he did, you wonder what we would look like. Who would we look like? And what would we be like if that's all we were ever to be? And to me, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. We all have our own function. We, some of us may be the toes, and some of us may be the fingers, some of the eyes, some of the ears. 
We have different functions within the body. And Christ designed us that way on purpose. We're going to see that beautifully drawn out as we go further down in our study in Corinthians. But what would a symphony be like if you went there and everybody had their own instrument and they're playing at their own time, playing their own piece of music, doing what they want to do? We all got gifts. They've all got their instrument, but they're all doing their own thing. None of us would want to sit through a concert like that. I know I wouldn't. Christianity is founded on Jesus Christ. It is not on the eye. It is on the bent eye, the curved eye that turns the eye into the sea. I'm now about Jesus. My life is about him. I like what Tozer wrote. He said, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are one accord being tuned not to each other, but to another standard by which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to be unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. What a wonderful truth. You see, unity is found when I break away from the I and I set my heart on the sea. Jesus, this is all for you. I'm here for you, to serve you and to do your will and the purpose. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Man, that's a beautiful thing we just described. No longer thinking about me, what I like, what I want to do. Because the issue is not whether you're Pentecostal. The issue is not whether you're from the Baptists or the Charismatics or the Methodists. But where do you stand with Jesus? Is your life about him? Are you serving him? Because we all have our own preferences. You know, some like it hot. Some like it cold. Some like music one way. Some like it another way. Some don't like music at all. There's people who come. They come after the music is done. They don't particularly care for it. Some like it traditional. Others don't. Some are more emotional than others, some less emotional. Some have, you know, greater agreements and higher degrees and higher education. Some don't. But I'll never forget the picture of when I first made my way down to Costa Mesa back in the early 70s. And the sight I saw was something that just captured my heart. It was right out in the song, Little Country Church, but there was short hair, long hair, coats and ties, and all they were doing is simply praising the Lord. That's a beautiful, beautiful scene. Didn't matter. Some people just kind of came and said, you know what? I might not like this style, but I'm here with these people, and we love Jesus, and we're going to do this. 
Now, there is nothing wrong, of course, of going to a church that meets your needs and you want to commit to that church. I think there's some very good reasons for selecting a church. When I looked for a wife, I didn't settle for just any woman. No, I looked for one who I knew I could fit well with. And even then, after we got married, we had a lot of things to work through. And it's going to be that way within the body of Christ. There's things that we have to work through. There's issues that we're going to have to deal with and things we're going to have to put up with. And you know what? When you're serving Jesus and you're going after Jesus, you can work through those things. You see, it's the same way in a marriage when a couple are like looking to Jesus and they're both pursuing Jesus. Guess what? As they get closer together and they walk, they're going to find themselves getting closer and closer and closer as they're looking to Jesus. That's the way it is with the body of Christ when Jesus is the center. And it is true. You know, think of Calvary Chapel. We're just only one small part of the body of Christ. That's all we are, one small part. You know, we, have, we meet a specific need in the body, but we're not the only church. I, I pray I never convey to you that I think we're the only church. I pray that you never get a sense that I, that I have a feeling like, hey, we're the only ones doing it, right? I don't believe that. I believe that the body of Christ is so much greater, so much more vast than anything, but I'm thankful for what he's given us here. And I love being with you. I'm glad for every one of you who are here and make this your home. But we have our own flavor, and some like it, some don't. But we who believe we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and we're called now to work in unity and bond of Christ. And it's by the grace of God who holds us together. We have had our differences in the past, and we've worked through some things in the past. But when you have Jesus, you're looking to Jesus, you know what, I can get over that. You know, it's interesting. I go around the world. Over the years, I've been really blessed to go to a bunch of different countries and meet a bunch of different people. But I can meet a Christian thousands of miles away who doesn't speak my language, who has a totally different environment than I've ever known, very poor. And I can meet with them, and all of a sudden, there's this common bond that I have. You see, Jesus transcends the differences. When you love Jesus, there's something that just pushes past all this stuff and you come to this relationship. You see, we're playing on the same team. You're playing baseball. You know, have some who are good at pitching. Someone may be good at catching and someone at batting and you might have the outfielders and the shortstops and those are particularly good at playing one position over the other. But what if the team is made up of only catchers? What if all you have is only batters? I mean, if you're going to win, you have to have them all working together. And that's the picture. If I should remove Christ from that centerpiece of my life and begin to get caught up in the eye, things will get messy. They just get messy. Carnal minds lead to carnal lives full of selfishness and pride that leads to hurt and grief. I personally believe the more spiritual we really get, the less denomination we will be, de denominational we will be. Because our interest is so different, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. There was a song that Love Song once wrote many years ago, but it said, let us be one. Lord, don't let me strive against my brother. I'm so tired of it, don't want to do it no more. Lord, don't let us fight against each other. Let us be one in you.
Lord, give us love for one another. And what we say yes and what we do, Lord, teach us to build up one another. Let us be one in you. For your sake, let us learn to wait on the Spirit's move. We know that the hour is so late. You'll be coming soon. Let us be one in you. And he is coming soon. And there's work to be done. I often challenge our staff and some of the people I meet with, listen, what would it be like if we went to church on a Sunday and we all have a different mindset? It's not so much what I'm going to get today. What if it was what can I give today? What if God wanted to use me and somebody else's life to encourage them? What instead of me saying, well, I want to go where I like the music, I want to go where I like everything, where the pastor speaks to me, he said, I oh, know, I'm going to go today, and I want to be a blessing to somebody else. I want to encourage someone. I want to love someone. In the name of Jesus, I want to be used by him to minister to someone else. I'll tell you what you have there. You have the recipe for a very joyful church. When I see the joy of the Lord in some of your lives, I know what's going on with you. I know that you're ministering to others. I can tell. And it pleases my heart so much when I hear about it. Nobody has to come and say, hey, you know what they did? I can just see it. When we get past the eye and we turn our life over to the sea, everything changes. And then there's joy, lots of joy. Father, we thank you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word. The challenges, God, we recognize even in this, Lord, that there's convicting things that we have to deal with. Lord, I pray that even as we go through our study in Corinthians, Lord, that you would use it. Lord, that you would encourage us with it. And that your love, Lord, would be made known so much clearer, more evident. As, Father, we learn how to love one another in our service of you. I do pray, Father, for greater unity. I'm so grateful for what you've done here and what you're doing here. I can see it. But I know, Lord, there's more. I pray, God, you give us the heart of Jesus to serve the purpose of Jesus and the love of Jesus. This morning, God, we are just grateful to be your children. We know, Lord, there's so much you want to teach us. I pray, God, that you would give us the hearts of learners who say, oh, Lord, we're ready to hear it even, even if it hurts. We're ready to hear it. And so, Lord, we commit that to you this morning. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you visit for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you've been blessed by this study. Stay tuned for our next series coming soon.